those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Joe. I'm one of the, or I am the campus pastor out at the Ridge. Um, so it's uh, good to be here with you this evening. I uh, feel like I'm visiting as well, but particularly a, um, a warm welcome to you this evening if you are visiting us and joining us. If maybe you've committed to come to the series uh, while you're here, um, and uh, it's fantastic to have you. We've been going through, now this is the fourth week, going through the series called Tough Questions. Uh, and our aim for this series has really been twofold. We wanted to make uh, believers into thinkers and thinkers into believers. Um, and what I mean by that is some of you have a genuine relationship with Jesus. You've known him for a while. It's this real one that you have conversations with him. You know him and you know him well. But when you pressed hard on why you believe what you believe, sometimes you battle to find the answers. And you lack a bit of confidence in it. And, and so what we're hoping to do through the series is uh, just at a basic level, make you confident in the fact that you uh, can uh, or that you have a faith that is based on some good rationale, some good logic. And, you know, you can just be confident in the fact that this is not just an airy, fairy, pie in the sky type religion. We have some logic behind what we believe. But I guess first prize would be for us that you come away with this, uh, with a confidence to be able to engage with those who don't know Christ. So those family members, that strange uncle that you have that uh, always throws these conspiracies at you and things about the Christian faith at you, that you would be able to, man, give him uh, those answers or at the very least go, I know there is one. Let me go and find it. I'm coming back. And to, let's continue this conversation. But I guess the other side of the coin is that there are those of you who are thinkers and just, uh, and you are the ones that are asking those questions. You ask your family members, you ask your colleagues, you ask Christians that you meet about all these tough questions. And every time you ask them, they can't really give you anything that's solid. But what they do is go, man, just believe. Don't worry about that stuff. It doesn't matter. Just believe and then it will all come to you and you will just know. And, and for you as a, a type of logical type person, that's just not good enough. <laughs> that's just not good enough. And so what we're hoping is to show that there is some rationale behind what you believe to a point that you go, man, this is real. This is true. And so during the series, we've tackled three questions already. We've tackled the first one, which how can we believe that God, how can we be sure that God exists? Our second one was, does evolution and science contradict Christianity? And last week, we looked at the question, how can we trust the Bible if it's full of myths and contradictions? Now, that is a really important one. Um, it's, a, it's a massive one. Um, and I would really suggest that if you have not heard that or you missed last week, that you go online. Matt does a great job of being able to unpack why we can be so confident that this book here, at the very least, if you are a skeptic, non-believer, at the very least, that you can be sure that this book is a historical book that is valid, uh, there's validity behind it, it is trustworthy and true, has not been changed. As believers, we believe this is the inspired word of God. But at the very least, as a skeptic, you can come to the conclusion that this here is trustworthy. And, and the reason why that is important is you're going to see tonight there's going to be a shift in the way we approach things. In the first two weeks, we, we went and uh, approached it. You would have noticed that while we use scripture, it wasn't the foundation of our arguments. But now that we've discussed the validity of scripture the trustworthiness of it, that you've understood that hopefully. If you haven't, go you listen to it again. But now our primary source of argument is going to come from the Scriptures. 
So you're going to see that shift. So that's really important there. And to, tonight, man, I've got this massive task. I've got this task of answering the question. We know Jesus was a good man, but why try and make him into the Son of God? And I, I'll be honest with you this evening, I feel rather inadequate in to be able to discuss a massive one like this. It will take series to answer this. But I'm also confident in the fact that the Holy Spirit does the work and not me. Um, so we can trust in him. People that ask this question generally give this kind of approach. So I, I don't have it on the board behind us. It was a bit too long to put out. I would have to like four slides. But I want you to just listen to this. This is the, roughly what they say about Jesus. They say, he was a man known for his unusual wisdom which he spent his lifetime trying to instill in everyone who would listen. His efforts were met with great resistance as he pushed against the accepted religious beliefs and authorities of his day. But gradually, against the odds, his teachings caught on as more and more people were changed by his words and became his disciples. In time, his circle of followers grew into a movement, and after his death, the movement became a major world religion. Over time, however... Some of his followers, zealous to honor him in the greatest way possible, began to transform what he had taught into something quite different. The teacher had claimed to be just that, a spiritual guide with unique, unique insights and wisdom, but they turned him into a savior, and more than that, a divine figure who were to be worshipped. Ideas that were completely contrary to what he taught. Is that account true? Yes, it is, but not of Jesus but a guy named, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Sihitra Kutuma, also known as Buddha, who lived about 500 years before Christ. In, uh, in actual fact, he, he was a man that never really discussed in detail the existence of God. Many would argue that he was an atheist. Some would say, no, not an atheist, but agnostic, a person who believed that there might be a God, but you could never, never really know him. His focus was never on, does God exist and who he is, but rather spiritual practices. And after his death, over a period of time, what happened was his followers started to say, hey, let's honor him. Let's make him great. Let's worship him. And today we have Buddhists that worshiped Buddha. But the question begs then, has the similar thing happened to Jesus? Has this happened to Christ? And was he just a good man? And over time, did people just decide, man, we should worship this guy. He says some really good stuff. But the idea of Jesus being a good man is not something new. There's a guy named uh, Thomas Je uh, Jefferson. He was the third president of the United States of America. I learned that this week. Um, he is notorious for uh, going through his New Testament and cutting out all the references to Christ's divinity and miracles. And he would write to his mate, John Adams. I assume it's his mate. And he says uh, the following things. He, he, he says, these are the two true teachings of Jesus and it's described the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been. And this is the idea people hold. Jesus was a great moral teacher. He taught some great stuff. But man, this idea of him being savior of the world, that wasn't initially what he was. That was a, a diversion from his followers that they made up so that they kind of went away from the teaching of just love thy neighbor. But this idea that Jesus is a good man is something that non-Christians seem to hold to. And I, it's, it's not, no surprise why, because other religions think so too. Buddhists would say that Jesus is just a, a Buddhist for the West. 
Islam would argue that Jesus is a prophet of Allah. And in actual fact, one day when you die, Jesus is going to be there to tell you you were wrong. Jews consider, some Jews consider Jesus to be a moral teacher, but he never, ever, ever was the Messiah or or the Son of God. And so here we find ourselves in a place of going, was Jesus a good man or was he actually the Son of God? And so common culture today teaches the fact that Jesus was just a good man and over a long period of time, we made him into the Son of God and he never was. This became popular with Dan Brown. We're hearing a lot about him. He, he's, he's Da Vinci Code. He writes in there and gives this idea that it was at the Council of Nicaea when everyone got together and decided to worship Jesus in the 4th century, 300 years after Jesus' death. And while this might be the popular view, any historical scholarship will tell you that's just not the case. It just really isn't. For example, there's a guy, and this will become my first slide, guys. Um, uh, Dr. Larry, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name, her to do, it just doesn't sound right. Um, a New Testament uh, scholar at the University of Edinburgh. He would argue that when it came to this devotion to Christ, it was like this big bang. It was, there was no devotion to Christ, and all of a sudden, there was this mass amount of worship, pursuit, loving, praising, telling others about Christ. It came out of nowhere. It wasn't there, and suddenly it was. This devotion to Jesus, this, uh, this worship of Him. And to really understand this point, we need to just touch on what we touched on a bit last week, is that all the New Testament books were written between the period of AD 50 and 100. That's between 20 years to 70 years after Jesus' death. The whole of the New Testament was there written, done, and dusted. That is a good couple of hundred years before the Council of Nicaea. I mean, a good couple of hundred years. There was this worship for Christ. And one of the examples of this is that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he puts together a ready formed creed as he writes to a ready formed established church. A creed is a, an understanding of theological understanding, which we put together in nice, lovely words to help us. This is what we believe. And so here is already 17 years after Jesus' death. There's an established creed. to an established church. That's pretty much the beginning. To contrast that, Buddha's first letters that he has, or writings that we have of his, we have 300 years after, roughly 300 years after his death. And I say roughly because we're not even sure what century he died in. And here we have 17 years at this one particular point. Man, that's pretty much the beginning. But it wasn't just something that happened in Jerusalem. So it wasn't just this mini explosion that happened just in Jerusalem. Rather, the expansion of this devotion to Christ is massively widespread, hugely widespread. It goes all the way from Jerusalem in the east all the way to Rome in uh, the west and places in between, Thessalonica, Caesarea, Philippi, Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, Man, those were all established churches that had already believers that believed that Jesus was God from the very beginning. This idea that Jesus became a, 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 a deity in the eyes of his followers long after his death just holds no weight when we look at the New Testament. 
established churches already there. And even when we look in the writings themselves, what we see is that there has this reference to Jesus being the Christ. Now, some of you might be surprised by this, and it's okay, um, is that Jesus Christ, Christ is actually not his surname. It's not. <laughs> I don't laugh. It's, uh, he had to find out at some point. Christ is not actually his surname. And, um, and so the word uh, Christ derives from the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew meaning, the anointed one. And so the, the Greek translation of that title is Christ. Does that make sense? And so what we find is we find this title is used over 500 times in the New Testament. Now, that for you might still seem like, what does that even mean? Well, what does this anointing mean? Well, the anointing was used in the Old Testament for two particular offices, for a priest and for a king. And so the priests would be anointed and the kings would be anointed. And so when the New Testament writers refer to Jesus Christ, when they talk about him being the Christ that was to come, what they are saying is like a priest, Jesus has come. Like a king, Jesus has come. He is the preeminent priest and the preeminent king. As a priest was there to establish righteousness, so Christ has come to establish a worldwide righteousness. As he was there to come and uh, be king, as king was there to rule and, and, and make sure there was priest, Christ was the preeminent king who is going to come again and establish peace. So when the entity calls Christ, that's what they're referring to. At the very, very least, the first believers, those first followers of Jesus believed that he was the preeminent priest and the preeminent king that was coming to establish worldwide righteousness and peace. Isn't that incredible? And so this idea that it was made over time, again, holds no weight. But what do we, what do we see? We, and this will be quick. We see some of the titles that are used for Jesus there. Some of them are Jesus as the Son of God. We see, again, they call him Savior. They call him Lord. They call him God. And they call him Lord, as I've mentioned, but all the authors, every single one of them, refer to Jesus as Lord. I don't have Jude up there. Jude, uh, verse 1 uh, uh, Jude 14, sorry, not 1 to 4, Jude 14, points that out there to you. Again, we, we see that the NT writers encourage giving Jesus the most divine honors. They, they call Jesus, um, they call their disciples to follow and believe and trust in him. They, they say they must pray to him, they say they must worship him. My key point here, guys, is this is there was never, ever a point in the early community that followed Christ that they thought he was not the Son of Man, the Son of God. They did not think he, they always thought he was the Messiah. They did not just think he was a good man or a wise teacher. So much more they held to. But the argument goes, well, Joe, that's fantastic, mate. Um, listen here, but what happens if it was just a one massive colossal mistake. Jesus died and his disciples just got it all wrong. And they went and followed him. But, you know, is there any evidence that Jesus thought that about himself? Well, this becomes a little tricky. And the reason why I say it becomes a little tricky is because skeptics would argue that the, um, the gospels in which we find Jesus' words and what he called himself primarily they would say, well, how can we trust it? 
And again, I would suggest that you go listen to last week's sermon. You would come to a, a big conclusion that you can. But for the sake of the skeptic tonight, we're going to approach it in a way that a skeptic would hold to. Liberal biblical scholars um, who are in search of the so-called historical Jesus have come up with certain criteria and tests in which we can uh, try and decipher whether or not these are actually Jesus' words. One of the examples and the ways and the criteria that they do this is they look for particular phrases that Jesus used, but the other NT authors didn't use. And the idea behind that is if the language is different, it probably means that Jesus did say it because those NT authors normally use the same language all the time. And so if there were similarities, you could question it. But if it's very different, it's a good chance that Jesus didn't use it. And one of those sayings that Jesus uses 82 times in the New Testament is the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 82 times, where in contrast to the rest of the NT and the rest of the authors, they use it three or four times. So for these liberal scholars, they would go, man, this is trustworthy. We could see that Jesus uh, did probably call himself that. Now, the problem that we have is that modern day readers, when we read this, we often assume what Jesus is saying is that he's just referring to his humanity, that Jesus is a man. But the problem is, yeah, we need to have an Old Testament background and understanding in order to really grasp what Jesus is trying to say. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is referring to a visionary prophecy that Daniel made in uh, Daniel 7, where he goes on to say, um, it says this, uh, one like a son of man was going to be presented to the ancient of days, which there is God. And this person would receive worldwide authority and rule. It's, it is um, this sovereign figure in which Daniel speaks about will be someone who would be worshipped and would rule over all nations, all people, every um person who spoke any language. Now in scripture, the only person that can ever be praised and worshipped is God. So when Daniel is referring to Jesus is referring to himself as the sovereign person who will be worshipped for all time by all people over all nations. And he particularly links this to Daniel 7 in Mark 14. Jesus is, is uh, being falsely arrested. He's um, about to go off in a trial and he's going to get crucified. Um, so he's standing before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the guys that want him dead, and they start firing questions at him. Bang, bang, bang. And <laughs> firing questions. Anyway, uh, uh, they were firing questions at him. And one of the questions the high priest says in Mark 14, verse 16, he says, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Which Jesus replies to and goes, I am. Now I want to stop there. We're going to continue with that. But I am in itself is a reference to the deity of Christ. In the Greek, it's emphatic. He's going, I, I am. We only translate it that way because in English it makes no sense, but it means I, I am. When Jesus is saying that, the people that are hearing him know exactly what he's referring to. He's referring to where Moses was standing at the burning bush and God says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go until Israel. I'm getting them out of there. And he goes, well, they're going to ask me who sent me. What's your name? And he goes, I am who I am. So when Jesus says, I, I am, he's pointing there. But he continues on to make sure that this high priest understands exactly who he is. And he goes, you will see the son of man seated. There's that word, son of man seated 
uh, in the place of the power of God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. By coupling the words son of man and coming on the clouds of heaven, he was claiming to be the divine person. Daniel 7 verse 13, it says, I saw someone like a son of man coming down in the clouds of heaven. Jesus, without a doubt, is claiming to be the sovereign person who was to be worshipped. Man, the, the response of the group just gives us, shows us that the high priest, when he hears this, he, he rips his clothes. That's what he had to do. He, he shows his horror and he, he tears his clothes and he says this. He says, why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard this. You have all heard his blasphemy. What is the verdict? Guilty, they cried. He deserves to die. Now, if Jesus was just claiming to be man, they've seriously overreacted. They understand exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I am God. And, and man, we have so many more I could cover to this evening. I, I had it all written down. There's this running through this. I'm like, way too much stuff. If you think this is a lot, <laughs> you should have seen what I had prepared. But what I want to do want to say is I want to, before we move on to the next section, is I want us to just look at a couple of verses. And you can put them up, gents. They're just on the, sorry, can you put up the next slide, please? Thank you. They're, those are the um, verses that, I, I was going to have them written down, um, but again, just too much. So you can write them down and you can check them out themselves. But I'm going to, I'm going to read them anyway. It says this. This uh, was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling himself, calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. That's the first one. The second one says, Jesus talking here, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, uh, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's an I am statement again. What happens? They pick, um, they, so they picked up stones to throw it at him. But Jesus hid himself like a ninja and went out of the temple. John 10, verse 30, verse 33, he says, I, Jesus talking again, I and the Father of one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him and said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. What I find fascinating about all these stories we've just spoken about is that Jesus never, ever defends himself. I mean, let's, let's just put ourselves in that shoes. We're having a conversation, and people pick up stones to stone you, and you're not sure what they're doing. Surely if Jesus, if they had misunderstood Jesus, Jesus would be like, whoa, guys, hang on a second. Why, why, why are you stoning me? Oh, because you call yourself God. No, 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 no. Let's put those down. Let's have a discussion. I don't mean that. I mean something else. This is what I mean. But Jesus never does that. He never defends himself. They want to kill him. In fact, what he does is he reinforces it. And so we find ourselves when we look at the fact that Jesus' disciples from the very beginning thought he was the son of God. And the fact that Jesus himself claimed to be the son of God. We find ourselves in a spiritual dilemma. We either got to think that Jesus was who he says he was, or we got to think that Jesus was not. But as a consequence to that, that he was not a good man, but a bad man and a false prophet. You can't hold both. 
A man that claims to be something else and taught it is not a good teacher. He's not a good man. He's a liar. We have this, uh, one of the most memorable quotes um, from C.S. Lewis says this. A man who was merely a man and said this thought of the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level which the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the uh, devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. We cannot fall on the side that this man was just a good man. You either have to come to the conclusion he was the son of God, or he was a lunatic. Because only lunatics call themselves God and aren't. So we have to find ourselves in this spiritual dilemma. We have to land somewhere this evening. We can't not. And so I guess the, the next question is, go, well, Joe, man, that sounds great. So his disciples worshipped him as the son of God. He claimed to be here. But how do we know that his claims are true? How do we know what Jesus said about himself is real? He could. How do we know that? Why should I just take this man at his words? And I think that one of the best ways in which we can come to this is what convinced the disciples that this man was real? What convinced that? The, and one of the first places we need to start, ironically, is at um, a point in which historically no one disputes. And that's the death of Christ. No major historian or any one of, historian of any one of, uh, that's worth their salt disputes that Jesus died. They might dispute his resurrection, but they don't dispute he died. There's a guy named um, John Dominic Crisson. Uh, he's the co-founder of the, um, the Nitrous Jesus Seminar. They're a bunch of scholars that promote highly, highly skeptical views of Jesus. I would not say they were Christian. I highly doubt that they would say themselves. Or at least they wouldn't hold to any orthodox view of Christ. He says this. He's the co-founder of this movement. He says, Jesus' death by execution under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can be. But the reason why the certain fact that Jesus died is ironic is because initially the idea that Jesus died by a Roman crucifixion was seen as something that proved that he was not the Messiah. See, Jewish perspective was that if you died on a piece of wood or tree, you were under the curse of God. And so we see this in, in, in Deuteronomy 21, verse 30, uh, 23. It says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And so it seemed to the initial followers of Jesus and to the Jewish people, man, that they're just Jesus. They got it wrong with him. He was not the Messiah because the Messiah surely would not be under the curse of God. And on, on top of that, they had this traditional view that what the Messiah was going to come and do was he was going to come and wipe out Rome. He was going to liberate Israel from the oppression of Rome. But instead, he has this Jesus not liberating the people from, the, uh, from Rome, but rather he becomes a casualty of the Roman occupation. He dies by their hand. And so it's no wonder why they're dejected and, and really upset about this all. because, man, they've got this wrong. But, but what changed their mind? Where did they come from, people that were dejected about the idea of Jesus, to some people that were going boldly for for Christ, simply the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus convinces them that he is the Son of God. That is it. And so we, we find here that the, there are some of the followers of Christ and his family members come to this idea that Jesus is alive. 
they, they realized that Jesus did not die and was cursed by God because of doing something wrong himself, but rather Jesus died for their curse and our curse as a result as well. That when Jesus died on the cross, what he was doing was not trying to set Israel free from the oppression of Rome, but he was doing something far greater than that. What he was doing was setting all people of all time from the oppression and curse of sin. Something far greater than their small minds had ever conjured up. And now, he's alive. This realization dawns on him. Paul uh, explains this in in, in Galatians 3 verse 13, he says, when he was hung on the cross, he took, I know I've got two of them, he, he took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoing. See, the Christian movement did not start with a bunch of people seeing their teacher die and then trying to remember everything in which he had taught and then going on. on. The Christian movement started because the teacher had rose again from the dead. And as a result, they believed and it went powerfully forward to change the course of history. If Jesus did not rise again, the people that would start the Christian movement would never have, and we would not be sitting here this evening. We would not. But again, the skeptic in us always asks the question, well, how do we know that Jesus rose again from the dead? How do we know that? So I'm going to give some, some, some facts to it. I can't give them all, but we'll, we'll tackle some. We're going to give just three. Some of them have some points. But the first one is, no responsible historian denies that Jesus died on a Roman cross. And while that's important, is, this, is that in order for Jesus to rise again from the dead, he had to die, right? Just simple maths. Jesus did not die. There was no resurrection. But the fact that he did die. Some would argue that his body was stolen. Uh, no, that it was someone else. Um, some would argue that um, he did not die on the cross, and we don't have time to tackle those. But the fact is, you can just look at the, 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 what Jesus said on the cross when he was dying, and you would realize that has to be the Son of God. He, he did die. And people who, who come up with those other stories, they're, they're hard-pressed for proof. It's just assumptions that they have made to try to explain away the death of Christ, but there is no evidence Historically, non-Christian historians would argue that Jesus died. Evidence for it or against that idea is lacking, to say the least. So the first one is that Jesus did actually die. The second one is that the tomb in which Jesus' body had been buried was found empty. That's important, right? If it was still there, it would be easy. The first thing that we have under this is the tomb they used is uh, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Jesus didn't have his own tomb. It was his he allowed Jesus to use it. Um, the disciples took him there and buried him there. And while that's an important fact, is because you need to understand that Joseph of Arimathea was part of the St. Hedron. He was a part of the group of people that wanted Jesus dead. And so if the disciples were making this stuff up, it would seem real and logical to choose a name of a person that wanted Jesus dead in the first place. But instead, they, that's what happens. And so the people could go to Joseph and go, was that your tomb? Yes, is it empty? Yes, it is. Did you want Jesus dead? Well, I was a part of that group, for sure. So man, this is, that just makes no sense for them to choose anything else. So the second one is Mary Magdalene and a bunch of women were the, one, the first witnesses. Mary Magdalene was a demon-possessed woman at one point. 
um, and Jesus appears to a group of women as the first witnesses. Now you've got to understand that 2,000 years ago, women had very little rights. Women did not have much say. Their testimony lacked witness. They, they would have not hold any weight, but yet if the disciples were making this up, surely they would not have decided that women would be the first ones to see him. They would have said, oh, Peter, Peter did. John did, James did. One of the close ones did, but no, no, no. The story shows that the woman were the first ones. And can we all just take pause and side note, how great is God that he valued women so much that he would firstly go and show himself first to woman and not man? The second one, I mean, third one is, there would be no credibility if the tomb was still uh, full of Jesus. <laughs> full of him. Uh, that's not how it was meant to come out, but you get the point. If Jesus was still in the tomb, man, the Pharisees that hated this idea of Christ would have gone there, taken this rotting body and gone, here's your Messiah, here's your leader, end of movement. But it was empty. It's not there. They couldn't produce a body because the body was raised. Now, some would say and argue, man, Jesus' body was stolen. Okay, let's think about this rationally. There were two highly trained Roman soldiers that were put in charge to guard this tomb. There were 12, some fishermen and some tax collectors that were so scared two nights beforehand that they ran away cowardly. Somehow they got the boldness to go and fight men with swords that kill people for a living, beat them because these men could not run away because they would have died as a result. That was punishment for their cowardliness. They would have fought to the death. They, these fishermen somehow beat these Roman soldiers and steal the body of Christ, make this all up, and then later on go and die for the stuff that they made up. Doubt it. The tomb was empty. But on top of that, and lastly what we see, is that we see that people were so convinced that their encounters with Christ, their lives changed drastically. As I said, man, these 12 disciples were cowering away a couple of nights before, hiding in an upper room. as They, they, they feared what the Jews would do to them because they were associated with Christ. Suddenly there's an emboldening in their lives that they go out and that they preach the gospel and even to the point of death out of the 12 apostles 11 of them will be killed because of their faith and the other one will die in prison boldened because they were sure without a shadow of a doubt that this jesus was alive and real not because they had made it up i've made things up before but when i'm going to get in trouble because i'm lying i tell the truth particularly if someone wants to kill me because of it here they are Bold. Man, we've got Jesus' brother named James. James in the book of the Bible was Jesus' brother, not the other James. There's two Jameses. Jesus' half-brother. He was a, high, a massive skeptic while Jesus was alive, before his death. He didn't believe that his half-brother was God. You can understand that. How many of you have siblings? You can kind of understand this hurdle that he had overcome here. That his older brother was God. No, this man's crazy. But what convinces you is when you see him die, 
And a few days later, he appears to you. Alive and well, risen from the dead, that can change a sibling's view on his own brother. We also have the Apostle Paul. His Jewish name is Saul. His Greek name is Paul. It didn't change. It just, those are the two different names. And Saul, or Paul, but Saul, ravaged the church. <laughs> he hated Christians. He founded his God calling to go and end this Christian movement, that he would kill them and throw them into jail. And somehow, on the road to Damascus, he meets Christ, and his life is changed, 180. And instead of the synagogues in which he was standing and preaching that this Christ was false and a lie and wrong, he's now standing there preaching, he is the Savior of the world. This is the Messiah, to a point where he would be beaten and lashed, uh, 41 times plus one, three times because of it. He would be stoned to the point where they would drag him out of the city that they thought he was dead because of his faith. He would be shipwrecked. He would go into prison for years and years on end because he was convinced that this Jesus was alive. Not because he had suddenly just had a change of hearts, but he had met the risen Jesus. He's there. He's alive. The resurrection of Christ proves that he is the savior of the world. Proves it. God vindicated him and rose him up. And so we find ourselves this morning, this morning, you see I preach only in the morning at the ridge and that's why that happened. We find ourselves this evening here at SBC with this dilemma in which we need to make a choice. Is this man the son of God or is he a lunatic? And man, if you have come to a point this evening that you believe that he is the son of God, Romans 10 verse 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and he's saved. It's when we believe this with our hearts that Jesus died and rose again for our sins so that we might know him. When we believe that we are saved, we are made just as if we had never sinned. That is justified. And if we've confessed, it's not just something we believe inwardly, you're not saying anything. It's this confession. There's this action. The repentance requires action. There's this confession that he is Lord. We are saved. And the beauty of the gospel is Jesus didn't die for half your sin or die for a semi-good people. He died for the worst of the worst and you can come just as you are to this Jesus. He has set you free from the curse of sin. So that's the response you need to make. But for those of us who know Christ, man, there is this freedom and we need to live in. There's this freedom in which he has given us. There is this open gate in which we can come to know this God, this creator in which we spoke about in week one and week two, who simply spoke in creation, came into being. He made the universe out of nothing. He is massive. He is big. He is holy. He is great. He has come so that we might know him. And he's died for our sins that we might enjoy the riches that come with not enjoying the creation, but the creator himself. And if he has done that, church, and this Jesus is who he's claimed to be, and we are convinced of it, there is a devotion that we need to pursue him wholeheartedly. 
too often, too many times in my life and in yours that we have taken this half-heartedly. We have come into church and we think our job is done. But there is so much waiting for us to enjoy in Christ. So much. And the call for us is to be able to give, like the disciples, full devotion to Jesus and everything we've done. There's a great call on our lives to be involved, to serve him, to love him. But not only that, if we are convinced without a shadow of a doubt that this Jesus is the son of God, it will embolden us so much that we will be able to go out and speak. Not to sit here on a Sunday only, but to be asking our friends the hard questions. Because we are convinced that he is real and he is life. And we want them to have it. But somehow over periods of times, our eyes have become dim to the reality in which we once saw and loved. And there needs to be a reopening of our eyes again. To see Christ as the risen King. As saviors and friends. And to pursue him with all our hearts and not half-heartedly. And so this, I'm going to call up the, the worship team, if they wouldn't mind coming up. We're going to have communion. Um, we're going to take some time to do that. And while the team's coming up and they start to play, this is how it's going to work this evening. Um, if, if you are wanting um, to spend some time chatting about more of how you make a commitment to follow Christ, man, we're going to be up here. Just come and do that. Come and chat. And may I ask if you're not a follower of Jesus that you would just leave these elements. It's for something that we do as followers of Christ. But for those of you who know Christ, could you just spend a moment before rushing up here? Maybe you want to grab and go take a seat. That's fine. But just asking that God would open your eyes again to this wonder and awe of our God. That you would repent from the fact that sometimes you've taken him lightly and not enjoyed the fact that the Son of God has come to die for you. Because he has made a way that you might know him and know him well. I've done enough talking. So I'm going to pray, and then that's going to happen. But please, if, you, if you're wanting to make a commitment, Lawrence, Howard, and myself are going to be here. We'd love to journey with you through that and just chat more. Um, even when the song is done, head up. All right, we'll be here. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that Jesus is the Son of God. We're so grateful that he's real, that he's died and rose again so that whoever might believe in him might become a new man. That you would take out the the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That we become a new creation in Jesus. That we would be once slaves to sin, but now adopted sons and daughters in Christ. There's this newness in it. And I pray for those, Lord, that are still dead and not alive in you. That, Lord, you'd speak life into their hearts right now you would reveal Jesus into into their hearts that they would just know without a shadow of a doubt that you were real I can't do anything Lord but your spirit can be merciful we pray Lord I pray for those of us who who know you we have this freedom that awaits us in Jesus but yet somehow in our sinfulness and stupidity we run back to the yoke of slavery would you set us free again Lord would we stand firm in the freedom that Jesus has 
for us. Would we be men and women that are emboldened by your spirit to go out and proclaim Christ? Would we live a heart, a life of devotion to Jesus? We can't do this on our own, Lord. We need you. Thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name.